The resurrection of the crucified Jesus brings transformation, a truth we celebrate every Sunday. But then Monday arrives with its unrelenting demands and distractions. In view of this perennial challenge, we invite you to join us for the day after Sunday, a weekly discussion between a preacher, Chris Costaldo, and a music guy, Greg Wheatley, on the implication of Christ's kingdom for everyday life. And indeed, another Monday rolls around. They seem to come awfully quickly. I think that's a function of age. I don't know. Chris, what do you think? I'm feeling it too, Yeah, and you're a lot younger than I am. But here we are, and uh, our podcast again called The Monday Conversation. We just kind of like to get together. He's the preacher, and I'm the music guy. We've both agreed to not infringe on the other guy's domain. You won't find me preaching around here. Does that mean you're going to sing? How about you? (laughs) Are you going to sing? I'm not going to sing. <laughs> okay, no, then we're, not. we're good, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so what's on your mind today? What do we want to converse about? Well, I thought today we would talk about the necessity of the church. Why is it essential for us to gather on Sunday morning as God's people and do what we do in this frenetic culture where we have so many other options, so many other activities calling out for attention? Why should Sunday morning be a priority? Yeah. And if we're honest, uh, even those of us who make Sunday morning a regular thing, let's be real honest. There are Sunday mornings where it sure would feel good to stay in that bed, wouldn't it? That's right. And it's a fact that today, attendance at church is not what it used to be. Mm -hmm. I was with a group of pastors discussing this phenomena, how on Sunday now there's often people missing. They'll come every second week, every third week, but are otherwise not there. Well, and you probably remember a few years ago, I think some books came out that sort of explored this idea of formal Christianity. In other words, let's just frame it kind of starkly here. Why not get a bunch of Christians together and go to Starbucks and have coffee and call it church? Yeah, and here at New Covenant, we are eager to see that kind of life-on-life ministry happen. Call it missional, call it what you will. But there's something about the assembling of God's people on the Lord's day, lifting their voices in unison, hearing the word of God, engaging in fellowship that is different from everything else we do in our Christian life. Where do you think this has all started? I think we're both, and again, you know, I'm a little older than you are, but we both are old enough we could look back and say, there really has been a downward trend in the commitment to Sunday morning church attendance. So I've done a little reading this week in preparation for Sunday, and uh, one of the books that I've read is the the great book by Nathan Hatch, Democratization of American Christianity. And I had recalled that there he has a chapter, it's titled The Sovereign Audience. And he tells the story from a historical point of view of the the kind of outreach and innovation that occurred during the days of Wesley and uh, Whitfield and how that took shape over the course of time. It's interesting, they they were called irregular preachers who modeled themselves. How would you like to be called that? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I've been called worse. (laughs) What what does that mean? Well, this was a pejorative term by the establishment to describe these these generally young innovators, these new lights who modeled themselves after Wesley and Whitfield by going into tent meetings and out on the frontier to preach the message. And there's so much about that we, we would affirm mm-hmm. um, and celebrate. Well, the old circuit rider thing, right, with the Wesleys and his ilk, uh, where they got on horseback and rode. And that's exactly what it was. Yeah. And so, from our point of view, we rejoice in that kind of creativity 
and urgency. The problem, however, is that the, the theological focus quickly fell apart. So I came across this statement that describes it, statement by Hatch, and here's what he says. This was an age of communication entrepreneurs who stripped the sermon of its doctrinal spine and its rhetorical dress and opened it to a wide spectrum of fresh idioms, true-to-life passion, simplicity of structure, and dramatic creativity. Most noticeable were the uses of storytelling and overt humor. Can I jump in here with a music observation? So right in that same time period, we're talking uh, a little later than Wesley, we'd be talking about the middle 1800s when the whole frontier push was was so strong in our country. Um, You find a similar thing going on with our music. Hmm. So it's the birth of what we now call the gospel song rather than the, the, the hymn which in some ways is analogous to what you're saying about the, the sermons, that a lot of the theological punch, I don't, I don't want to say it was eliminated, but it was sort of downplayed. Um, and y- you can understand why, good reason. People that they were ministering to were not highly educated people. Right. So you have these frontier pioneers who are pushing westward, and the concern of these evangelists and song leaders is how do we speak their language? So you find the same thing happening in music as well. And where did that go historically? Well, you've got, um, so we still sing gospel songs, right? We sing, um, they're usually the songs that have a chorus with them, a refrain. Mm -hmm. Good example would be, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? That's the Isaac Watts hymn text. What happened is in the frontier era, there was appended to that the chorus at the cross at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away you hear the difference in the mm-hmm. text right the first one is a more objective look at Christ's work for us the second is sort of a subjective testimony a- and so the point is not that there's anything wrong with the second one it's just interesting to point out the the turn that's beginning to happen towards the subjective yes so anyway I, I interrupted your thought but I, I couldn't help but do that because there's a there's an interesting parallel there well and, and that's the direction Hatch goes he's pointing out there are, are assets you know there there are elements of this experience that we need to retain mm-hmm. um, but recognize it comes with a cost so as I'm, I'm reading Hatch you know how this goes you're, you're alerted to other works that also tell the story and one of which is Alexis de Tocqueville's democracy in America. So reading through that, and he's confirming much of, of the portrait, and came across this fascinating statement. So the, the subject here is the democratization, that is, everyone has equal authority, yeah. uh, equal input into this Christian faith. And here's what de Tocqueville said, not only does this make men forget their ancestors, but it also clouds their view of their descendants and isolates them from their contemporaries. Each man is forever thrown back on himself, and there is a danger that he may be trapped in the solitude of his own heart. That, Mm -hmm. I think, was the point you were just making. To be sure, we want every every Christian to have a testimony that's fresh and personal and meaningful, but if if it's so me-focused, I can easily find myself in this place in which I'm trapped in myself. Yeah, which brings us squarely back, doesn't it, to why we do church. Um, I don't think any one of us would argue that it's theoretically possible to be 
a child of God and be on your own uh, because we believe that one becomes a child of God by the shed blood of Jesus and faith in that. But it surely, to say the least, truncates your spiritual health, doesn't it? To yes. try to be a lone ranger. Um, there's something about that corporate entity that we call the church that God intends to be in place. Right? What do we think of individualism? Well, we want to affirm the importance of individuals making a personal decision for Christ and taking that responsibility. But individualism often pushes further such that it is Jesus and me alone mm-hmm. uh, without reference to the larger community. That is to say, we don't recognize that I have an identity that is bigger than myself. Right. I'm part of a body. Right. Yeah, which brings us back around to why we do church. So um, I'm just thinking about our services, Chris, and, and this could be said of numerous churches across the country. We're not unique. But we make a really studied effort to maintain in our church services things like the Apostles' Creed. Um, We, every week, affirm our faith together with the millions who have gone before us, which I think is a tremendously exciting thing. When you stand and you realize that you're affirming the same truths that people for generations have affirmed, um, there's something about that that that's really, really vital, isn't there? Timothy George once said, the Holy Spirit has a history and that matters. Mm -hmm. We need to be attentive to the way in which the Spirit has led the church to articulate its faith and celebrate it in the course of worship. Now that's not to say that tradition necessarily has the same level of authority as Scripture, but it is to say that we need a biblically chaste tradition tradition, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, that guides us when we come together. You think in some ways, uh, this is the old baby with the bathwater syndrome, I think, in some ways evangelicals, because of our emphasis on the personal nature of salvation, making sure we're not just joining a country club and thinking we're okay, right? Uh, Along with that, the downside has been to so play that up that we've downplayed the corporate aspect, that in trying hard to say, look, tradition is not as authoritative as Scripture, we've ended up saying it's not authoritative at all. I once had a pastor friend who said, church history is like a vehicle that's going out of control. And uh, the person in the driver's seat jerks the wheel to the left, and Mm -hmm. the passenger jerks it to the right, and Mm -hmm. back and forth it goes. So this pendulum swing. And so this is a classic example of that. You know, we look at the attractional church, for example, and see the the seriousness with which they consider the needs of the seeker. And I want to say, with my with my outreach hat on, there's a lot of that that's quite good. We we need to be mindful. Um, but when we think about Sunday morning in particular, when we gather to worship the the living God, we want to have a decidedly God-centered vision that has his reality at the forefront. Mm-hmm. Let me play, uh, if it's okay to say devil's advocate here. Can we say that on this podcast? Uh, let me let me take the, the opposite view for a minute and push you on that. What about the person that says, okay, wait a second, I, I get everything you're saying, all that stuff is important, but aren't you, Chris, saying then that there's something magical about gathering in a building at a certain time with 100 other people, 200 other people? Um, why is that so what difference does it make? Why don't I just get 10 of my buddies together at Starbucks on Saturday night, pray together, read the Bible together, and say that I did church? 
I was with a friend recently who's very evangelistic, and he was quite honest, saying, for me, the, the centerpiece of my faith is my ministry among my coworkers and my neighbors. And I go to church on Sunday morning in order to be equipped toward that end. Mm-hmm. And I, I was so glad to be to, sent out. And to sometimes be sent we out. use that language, don't we? Mm-hmm. Benedictions will often indicate that the people of God are now to go out into the world having having become equipped, right? And we can make the mistake of thinking that what we've just done there in our corporate worship is simply equipping. It is that, but it's a whole lot more. Mm -hmm. It is the moment in time when we meet as the body, joined together in this spiritual union in Christ, to worship, to to ascribe to the Lord the supreme worth that he alone deserves. And in doing so, we are joining with the church triumphant. There's that fabulous text in Hebrews 12, where uh, the writer talks about us being drawn to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the myriad of angels. Uh, So there is this inexplicable way in which we are there with men and women from ages past who are likewise worshiping God who sits upon his throne in the middle of it all. That happens when we get together, Mm -hmm. but I'm afraid that's a reality that we often overlook. And to me, I, I just speak for myself, that's so much more exciting than just thinking I've gone to a workshop to get me through another week. Uh, and again, to echo you, nothing nothing wrong with that at all. But that idea is so exhilarating to me that we not only are affirming with brothers and sisters across the globe, but through time. And I think we've forgotten that. As you said, church triumphant, church militant, right? Um, there is some mysterious way in which we are joined with the apostles mm-hmm. uh, and with those in the 4th century, and with those in the 18th century. Uh, pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, think about that for a moment. When you're sitting in the pew, yeah. uh, this great cloud of witness surrounding us, if you will. Uh, th- th- so another way to put it might be worship on Sunday in the church, as the church, is not a means toward an end. It's an end unto mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. And you might say that our evangelism, important as it is, is in fact a means toward an end. We, we share Christ because there are people out there who are not yet worshiping. Yeah, yeah that sort of turns the thing on its head, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, as, a, as a pastor and as a music person who week after week have to think about these things, what are the, what, what's the so what of all this? If, if church is that vital, how does that affect what we do in planning, in execution. Um, one, of the, one of the biblical stakes in the ground, to my thinking, is Colossians 1.18. There Paul says, And he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Uh, Jesus is to be supreme. So as we conceive of our, our worship time and we mobilize God's people, uh, we need to be abundantly clear that that's our priority. Mm. How are we exalting Jesus in this gathering? And, and that's important to say because the gravitational pull of our sin will always attract us toward something else. Yeah. Usually it's some kind of consumerism. Religion, uh, worship becomes a commodity that I consume. And I want it in such a way that it suits my needs. I like that preaching, 
because it's interesting mm-hmm. to me. I like that singing because mm-hmm. I find it inspiring. Yep. Now, we want preaching that's interesting. <laughs> we want worship <laughs> that is inspiring. But it's th- the reason why we want those things is so that we can exalt Christ. Mm-hmm. Easy, uh, I think easier and easier these days in our culture, the way it is to settle for something that is simply entertaining or um, nice. And again, it's tricky because there's nothing wrong with walking away from singing and saying, wow, I really enjoyed that. I mean, we should enjoy it. But if that's our driving force, then we're going to make decisions based on what will grab that person the most, maybe yes. a great tune. Yes. or um, And it gets it, it. it's challenging, isn't it? Reverence and relevance are not enemies. Yeah. Uh, they go together. Yeah. But there is a priority. And a God-centered approach to worship will will have the reverence of God uh, clearly in view. The other part of this challenge has to do with the nature of Christian life. And uh, very often in America, with a consumerist mindset, we we naturally think in terms of how it's going to serve me. Mm -hmm. But Jesus clearly said, you know, those who would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever would seek to save Mm -hmm. his life will lose it. Whoever loses it for my sake and the gospel will find it. Or in Bonhoeffer's words, uh, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him to come and die. Now, that's sobering, and we ought not say that flippantly, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And that ought to mean something, even in the context of corporate worship. Let's talk about what it means. Because, um, again, I'm thinking about the, the world we live in with you know texting and Instagram and Facebook and right now— and it is so me-oriented. I mean, when I when I thumb up and down the Facebook page, it doesn't take very long to realize that we're all posting things there that kind of pertain to me in one way or another, right? You all need to see this about me, right? Yeah. Even, even in the most innocuous instances, it kind of comes down to, I want you to know this about me. Yeah. Um, so we're breathing that air all the time, aren't we? One of my favorite sermons to preach is one that was entitled Christian Image is Everything. And I think the reason why I liked it is because it was so deeply convicting for me personally, Mm -hmm. frankly, uh, because as an Italian-American who's very much a product of the immigrant experience whereby promotion of self-image was uh, paramount. Mm -hmm. Kind of a matter of survival. That's right. Yeah. Those dear uh, immigrants came, and sur- survival was often a matter of having enough charisma to sell yourself and achieve your goals. So that's still part of my operating system mm. uh, as I've become self aware over the years. And the whole idea that God gives us another image, and it's, it's not rooted in who we are, first and foremost, it's rooted in Christ. Mm-hmm. And our calling is to be like an angled mirror that is postured obediently beneath the Father Mm. so that when his presence shines down upon us, the angled mirror, it then gets reflected outward along a horizontal plane. So uh, others who look at us see something of the risen Christ operating through us. So let me try this on you. I'm just the music guy. You're the preacher. So you correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like what we're saying is part of the process of sanctification is God getting us ever increasingly to places where we say, this is not about me. And that doesn't, frankly, happen overnight, right? Just because you one becomes a Christian, that doesn't disappear. But part of the process of this development in Christ is 
increasingly getting to the place where we say this is about someone and something, the church, a lot bigger than me. And does that maybe bring us back around to the function of the church? That when we meet, there ought to be in some way some more filing off of those rough edges that say, oh, this is about something so much bigger than my individuality. Uh, That's right, Greg. And I think when I preach, my opportunity is to call men and women to look above the horizon of this world, of themselves, of their own personal ambitions, and realize that Christ is really present, and he really cares about how we live our lives. He, he has a will for us. He has called us, and that what he intends for us to do is of eternal importance. Mm-hmm. And each and every day, I have the opportunity to recognize that. That's what it means, I think, to take up our cross and follow yeah. him, is to say, God, I believe that what you're doing is far more important than anything I could ever come up with. Yeah, and and one other thing, Chris, uh, you and I both have enjoyed some of the thoughts of um, James K.A. Smith, and I, I don't pretend to have read a lot of him or understand thoroughly, but I think one of the things he really wants to say is that he, he calls it uh, life's liturgies or the liturgy of life. What we do, first of all, what we love comes out in what we do. I heard this from Colin Smith as well. And then in turn, what we do becomes what we love. So another way to look at church, corporate worship, is a training for our affections, isn't it? Mm. Um, When we gather on Sunday morning and put away, to whatever extent God enables us to, our individuality, we, we are saying we need to learn to love something much higher than our own personal needs. And we're going to do that in corporate gathering with all these other people. And we're going to, we're going to, uh, the writer to Hebrews said, right, encourage each other yes. um, as you come together. Yes. Smith likes to say we're not just brains on a stick, yeah. uh, but we have hearts. And God intends to address those hearts with the Spirit. In doing so, he gives us new affections, mm-hmm. affections that matter, affections that endure, And that's the enterprise of looking beyond ourselves. So to have a personal testimony, so back to, you know, 18th century Christianity in America, to to sing a gospel song, to testify to what God has done in me is a good thing. But let's not be so me-focused that we lose sight of the God who is doing the work and see that God is supreme. We are not. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for the day after Sunday. We'd love to have you worship with us at New Covenant Church this Sunday morning at 10.30 at the corner of South Washington and 75th Street in Naperville. And please join us next week for the day after Sunday.